passage is from Mark 15, the original gospel, as they say, in which we read about Jesus' death at the sixth hour. If you'd like to follow along, otherwise I'll read that for you, and then I'd like to close with another New Testament passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If at all possible, imagine yourself that day staring at the cross in probably it would be a state of mind of disbelief, if I may be so easy to say what we would all feel. Because death is hard to face, especially when he was your teacher, especially when he spewed wisdom. And he did these miraculous things that had never really been tolerated and seen and witnessed to before. And the final seconds obviously are inevitable as we watch. You can see the lungs, the droop of his face, the agony, the pain, the screaming words in a language that he's communicating to his Father in heaven, only to see it get worse and finally end up hanging as a lifeless body. I can't believe what I just saw. I know the things I heard and that he told me. But the words that would come out of my mouth would probably be, I can't believe it. I do And I will, but those are the words I choose. Mark 15, verse 33, has this recorded for us. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the royal guard, the centurion from Rome, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him, Jesus, and cared for Jesus' needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. In the beginning, there was darkness. In the beginning, as we read in Genesis 1, Darkness covered the earth. It seemed to rain. It hung thick 
There is no denying it. Also, in the beginning, it says, the Spirit of God hovered. The Spirit of God covered. Much like the depiction of the darkness on that initial day of creation. And then the words were spoken by God Almighty Himself, let there be light. And before we know it, as we page through the beginning and the origins of of what the Scripture says, of what we are experiencing here on this earth and this creation, there is a division. There is what we know as the fall. And there's a separation. There's a curtain, a veil. There is something that ends up keeping us from seeing God in ways in which we are told He is about. It's like that veil that you kind of can see it, but it's a little bit blurry. You wish it was kind of put away because it bothers you. It, it always seems to distract. The, the pure vision that we long for is, is interrupted, is disrupted, because that veil, that curtain, that separation, that covering, which is all the meaning of the word veil and curtain, has created that distortion. The one that we read about in the beginning because of the fall. A number of years ago, I was in a class called Praying by the Book with Professor Daryl Johnson, who is teaching at Regent at the time, and explained the end of the Bible in similar terms. There's much going on, a spiritual battle, but between us and this whole spiritual battle is this understanding of who the victor is, who our Lord is, who Christ Jesus is. Throughout the spiritual tensions and the ugliness, the distortion, and all this, we we understand because we have been taught and we have breathed the truth in as to who Christ Jesus is and how he has died and lived for us. But as Daryl Johnson reminded us at the end of the class, it seems that as long as we keep reading the end of the Bible, knowing how it ends, there's always this distortion, this veil, this curtain, that separates us from the full embodiment of what we know is yet to come. A curtain that separates us from Jesus, as if he's right there in front of us, but there's still a little bit of something in the way. That's why this morning I wanted to talk about the veil, because the veil bleeds through the Scriptures in terms of a covering, For not only the Ark of the Covenant, because they took it off its hangings from inside and then during transportation threw it over. But it's also a term in which it it covers people. It covers uh, women, but not always. And sometimes it's to prevent others from seeing their beauty. In other ways, the scriptures shows how this covering, this veil, enhances beauty. There's a mystery as to what the veil's role is. 
We know that it's not always true for Sarah, Moses' wife, didn't have a veil on. There was others too who didn't wear the veil and on and on it goes. But as we know that this depicts what happens in the days of Jesus dying where this veil, this curtain, is no longer present. During the time in which we see Jesus dying on the cross, there are a number of witnesses. I think this is very real because it not only happened then, but it happens today. There's bystanders who scoffed. There are the helpers that ran with the wine and vinegar. There's the ones who were confused. Their perception was distorted too because they were convinced. And they were ready to preach it and tell everybody. Create pamphlets and spread the word that this is all about Elijah. An Old Testament wrapped up theologian at the foot of the cross with friends, as bystanders, convinced it's all about Elijah. And then there's that peculiar individual that's probably standing 20, 30 feet away from the others that has been given the privilege and authority of being a Roman soldier, a centurion, as he is described in in the NIV, who suddenly has a revelation, one where he sees Something he hasn't seen before. It's still distorted because the scoffing comments are yelled out over there. Elijah's name is yelled out over there. But he's caught in the middle in disbelief of his belief. This is the Son of God. And then there's the women, Mary and friends who have lived under the tutelage and the discipleship program of Jesus for so long and had cared for him and knew him better than most, also witnessing amongst the scoffing and the Roman centurion and the ones who are crying out to Elijah. What a mess. And then it was so real. There was a fragile body that had been whipped. Real blood that dripped. There was scorn from the thorns and the words. And this was only the end. It started hours ago, days ago, where the tides turned and the people went against him. And the ugliness in this all made it even more of a distortion for some. It was mayhem. No one knew what was going on, let alone what to think, even though they were all very well clear as to the Scriptures, or at least parts of it. They heard that He was the Son of God, and some believed it. But there was much to be said about what goes on in a person's heart. Isn't that true for you? Well, let's just pick on me. I stand there that day at the foot of the cross. And I imagine sometimes somebody coming alongside of me. And I'm not a hugger, but he puts his arm around me because he knows I'm perplexed. 
He knows that I grew up with a wonderful Christian father and mother. And I went to Christian education, both within the church and the school. He knows that I, I had a wonderful upbringing that was clean, yet I was perplexed because of what happened. And he asks me when he whispers in my ear, a casual standard statement, how you feeling, Rick? I can rehearse the texts. I can tell them what I'm supposed to believe. But I'm drawn into the ugliness. And I can't handle the scoffers yelling out the stupid stuff that makes no sense to me. That just adds more pain to the day in which I'm experiencing. How about you? How helpful was it that the veil was torn? And that you have access. Because God's story is so great sometimes, it's too powerful that we are perplexed, that we are in disbelief. It happens often during times when a death is announced in the community or we go to a funeral. We hear the words of hope that come right off the cross about how death is necessary in order to bring life. That our address is just changing. How about you? When that person puts his arm around you or stands beside you and says, how are you feeling? What do you say? You know about the alive again refrain. You can sing it, although you don't feel like doing that right now. You know this is all because you have a heavy heart And you need forgiveness, and Christ knew that, and that's why this day is the way it is. I want to stop here, because that day didn't literally happen. The power of God's story, though, still stays and stares us in our faces, in our lives. But the power is so bright, so brilliant, that sometimes the veil, having been removed, isn't that helpful because we are still dealing with ourselves and the fact that we're used to that veil being there. I was faced with this in a whole different way. And I want to share a personal story in which I knew what I was supposed to say and what I was supposed to think. But in the inside of my heart knew that I didn't live up to what my catechism teacher taught me. Or what my Christian school teacher taught me. Or my theology professor at seminary taught me. Or what I read in the scriptures. On and on I go. My mom died when she was 88. But in her early 80s, she told me and the family and made an announcement that she had leukemia. Now, at the age of 83, I thought a lot of different things. And just to be vulnerable, some of those things were, well, better with, a, with an older person, I guess, say mom, than, than, a, than a younger person. And, and the, these weird statements just came out of my mouth. And my mom and I were pretty cool. 
It was okay. It wasn't like I was saying anything offensive. She was very open. We were very open. What happened in, in the months later after hearing the updates and so on, uh, she had told another announcement to the family that she was cured, that she was healed, that she no longer had leukemia. I was still struggling with why God would have a, an old mother like mine have leukemia. And then at this point when she told me that she was healed and the doctors had no explanations, I went behind closed doors, so to speak, and in my heart of hearts said, I think the doctors might have made a mistake. And then I thought to myself, maybe my mom is losing it. And, and I struggled with everything that could possibly happen other than the fact that God healed her. Now, that's just my story. You can ask me questions about it. I just use it as a way in which I see sometimes God's wholeness and beauty being so strong that I can't handle it. And I gotta go to my, my human nature to try figure things out before I accept the too-good-to-be-true news that we hear so often about Christ and what he's done for us. How about you? How are you doing at the foot of the cross? How are you doing with the too good of news to be true revelation? Like we sang in some of those songs, we are not worthy. There was no credit that we should have ever been given. There's nothing of the sort. But now that Christ has paid the price, hung on the cross, as gruesome and as ugly as the scenery had become, the veil was torn. And we got one royal Roman guard, the centurion, who could handle it. Others were caught in the Old Testament. And still, many others, I'm sure that day, walked away trying to make sense of it, like we later find out in scriptures. Fessing up to their disbelief. Wondering what they were thinking. A gift that we aren't too sure about. What a story. What a good Friday. Our Savior had died. Before we sing again, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and read this as a closing to our message this morning before we sing, Alas, did my Savior bleed. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7 says, Now, if the ministry that brought death 
which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. On that day when Jesus hung on the cross, much like Genesis 1, darkness covered the earth, as did the Spirit of the Lord God. As we see Jesus hung on the cross, dying for our sins, let us stand and sing praises to Him in thanksgiving, in deep meditation, alas, 